Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Everybody, great to have you back. Thanks to the great crew at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we not only have the company of an Australian world champion surfer, but also one of the sport's chief innovators, visionaries, and administrators. Wayne Bartholomew is the godfather of pro surfing. He sits in both the Australian Surfing and Queensland Sport Halls of Fame and is a member of the Order of Australia. The man known as Rabbit is a legend of the sport, and he joins us on This Is Your Journey. G'day, Wayne. Thanks a lot for your time. Oh, thanks, Sam. Good to uh, talk to you. I was going to roll with the master of the tube, but I, to be honest, I doubted my surfing lingo. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I've had a couple of barrels in my life. <laughs> I reckon you have, a couple of thousand. What, what, uh, that would have worked. I mean, it was said that you were, I was reading, it said that you were almost cavalier in your approach to big waves. Is that right? Oh, yeah, I think that was uh, pretty right. I mean, I, I didn't, at the time, I didn't realise I was cavalier. I mean, I mean, I, I was accused of surfing with arrogance. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, you've got to have a healthy dose of that, don't you? Well, you've got to have a bit of a swagger, you know, and um, especially, you know, if you're going to take on the big waves, you've got to have a bit of self-belief, even if, you know, you're some skinny, scrawny kid from Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Hey, just while we're on the subject as well, can you clear Rabbit up for us? I mean, there's lots of theories uh, over the origins of the nickname. Uh, where, for the record, did it actually, and how did it actually start, Wayne, if you don't mind? Well, look, there's a, there is a lot of different stories, and uh, whichever one suits, but the real story <laughs> is that I was actually in a, in my early life a, a bit of a pinball wizard, and yes. and I'd mastered the art of playing two machines at once. And it took a certain hopping action. At the time, I'd uh, I still had all my teeth, so they hadn't been knocked out yet. And um, you know, uh, this guy called Goober Barnes was standing there one day when I was 11 years of age. He said, "You're a rabbit," and guess what? It stuck. <laughs> <laughs> so where was that? This was at the old Gills Cafe, You're like your your beachside haunt, wasn't it? Back in your younger years. Absolutely, mate. Where we had a little racket going on there, making money on the trampolines and selling, um, you know, hustling on the pool table, uh, <laughs> you know, doing what any street urchin would do to, to get by. I love it. Now, as the saying goes around Bells Beach, you've got to win it to ring it. You're down at the Rip Curl Pro at the moment, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Where, where does it sit in terms of, I guess, profile on the surfing calendar, Wayne? I mean, longest running event in competitive surfing, isn't it? Well, well, it is, it's it's very much like the Wimbledon with tradition. You know, it's um, you know, we've got some traditional events in in Hawaii, but you know, um, Bell's has uh, been around since the early '60s. It's it's a place where the, the tribe gathered, and um, it, it's it's you really make a pilgrimage to Bell's Beach and the Torquay and Janjuk and then the surrounding area. And it's just it's just a wonderful, magical place in the in the world. And it, you know, I, I mean, I first came in. 1971, I, I saw the 
1970 World Championships at Bells Beach. I saw it, it was surfing on TV and I was watching all these incredibly great surfers. And I actually came to make the first pilgrimage, drove down with my sponsor, Joe Larkin, and with um, Queensland champion Michael Peterson and Peter Tanner. And we camped and it was, you know, that first trip to Bells, it, it just always stays with me. It, it was a magical time. And even when I drive into Torquay now, I, I still feel that magic. Yeah. And for those who are unaware, you'll obviously, you'll be in an official capacity down there. You're behind the mic on commentary duties, aren't you? Oh yeah, doing a bit of doing the broadcast. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of fun doing that. So, at what sixty eight years young, you're obviously still actively involved. I mean, the passion just listening to you is obviously just as strong now as it was when you first picked up a board as a whippersnapper up on the Goldie. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about surfing. You, you know, you don't hang up your boots. I mean, what happens when you're finished? Uh, you know, you, you think it's going to last forever, but you know, <laughs> professional surfing and going around on the world tour, you, you really do. What are you doing? You go, well, I can do this for the rest of my life, but one day it ends. And then, you know, you've got to kind of uh, keep reinventing yourself all the time. And, you know, when I finished pro-surfing, the, the sport needed administrators, promoters and all that sort of stuff. And it just kept me stoked. You know, now I've got kids who surf. And, you know, one thing about surfing, really is cradle to the grave. You just keep surfing until you drop. Yeah. Well, actually, one guy's just... Did I read this? Uh, Owen Wright, he's farewell. He got a wildcard entry down there, but this is the end for him? It is. And Owen, uh, you know, it's kind of... um, there's a there's a bit of a, a a little bit of sadness to me to tinge that because you know he had a heavy um, a very heavy head knock at Pipeline several years ago, and uh, he came back um, absolutely brilliantly and won the Quicksilver Pro at um, Snapper Rocks as a, as a comeback, but he's kind of been told by the medical uh, team that he can't afford any more head knocks and you know we know that concussions a huge thing in sport these days and yeah. and Owen you know looking at those places like Chopu and Pipeline and and uh, G-Land in Indonesia, I mean, they're, they're heavy waves. And, uh, you know, and Owen decided to call it a day. But it, it wonderfully, he's, he's going to um, have his testimonial at Bells Beach in the Rip Curl Pro. Fantastic. So, Wayne, as someone like you who fought, obviously, so ferociously to see this sport, I guess, gain credibility, and we're going to touch on this right throughout the show, but you must be enormously satisfied with the foothold that it's obviously gained in the sporting conscience, you know, not just here, but, but globally. Yeah, look, it, it it truly is a global sport, and and we really it does amaze me sometimes uh, just how far we've come. I mean, you know, back in the day when I declared myself to be a professional surfer, you know, the biggest skeptics were my fellow surfers. You know, they were at the time, you know, wanting to be, you know, build tree houses and and, and live in the trees in Gary, and you know, uh, it wasn't exactly surfers weren't exactly. Well, put it this way, we definitely were at the bottom rung of society, <laughs> and. And it was a well-earned badge, I'll tell you. They wore it as a badge of honour, and, and you can safely say now that surfers were the part of the original rebels. You know, you're either a surfer or a bikey, you know, back in those days. And, yeah. Uh, you know, it was basically the older generation, and it's just sort of surfers, a bunch of long-haired, surfy, hippie louts. <laughs> who, who could play two pennies at once? Well, they, well exactly right. <laughs> and, yeah, but, go on. Um, you know, just in, in saying that, though, you know, I, I really, I really wanted to. Um, I always wanted to. I always felt there was a destiny for this sport. And I, I wanted to make this sport, and, and, and we had to clean up our act and, and sort of get that credibility. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I sent a, a taxation return in um, to the um, in, in, in seriously in 1974 because a mate of mine had told me, look, you can you can run a business 
at a loss. And I went, oh, well, that's me. And uh, I got a letter back from the Commissioner of Taxation. Dear Mr Bartholomew, there is no such thing as a professional surfer. And it could have been like the bottom, like, P.S., get a job, you bum. <laughs> I hope you've kept that somewhere. Oh, you know what? It would be worth so much if I get that letter, you know. I probably screwed it up and threw it in the bin straight away. Oh, it sums it up so spectacularly well. So just before we get to our first break, Wayne, I mean, how often now do you get out on the on the board yourself? Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I've just come back I'm, um, from a bit of a shoulder surgery about a year ago. I'm, I'm rehabbing. I'm just getting back to paddling now, but I, I, I want to. <laughs> the desire is there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never leave you, I'd imagine. Uh, you're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers, a family-owned business since 1934. So where, when and how did it all start for Wayne Bartholomew? We're headed to the Gold Coast and the 1960s right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're with world champion Aussie surfer and pioneer Wayne Bartholomew. So, Wayne, born in northern New South Wales, but raised in Cooley, Coolangatta, correct? Yeah, look, I was, I was going nowhere fast on the on the New South Wales side of the Tweed River, but once I discovered Green Mountain, Snapper Rocks and Kira, I was I was on my way to the top. I just didn't know it. Well, <laughs> it's a good environment. Hey, what what was childhood like as a young fella? Surrounded, I think, surrounded by girls. So you had four sisters and 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 two half sisters growing up. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was. Um, you know, I, I I ruled the roost as far as doing the dishes and put it that way. But um, <laughs> uh, it, it, it it was fun. I mean, it was kind of tough though. Um, you know, my mum was a at the time a single mum at a time when it really wasn't happening in Australian society. You know, families. You know, stuck together, and there was no sort of um, uh, there was there was no sort of allowance by the government or anything for you know wives that deserted their husbands, so to speak. And um, so yeah, we we kind of did it pretty tough for a long time, but we had a still had a happy childhood and um, growing up in that environment. So is your mum uh, Betty and all the kids? I imagine Betty just worked incredibly hard to support you all. You must marvel at what she was doing back in the day. Absolutely. We don't know how she did it. And, um, you know, she was a, a professional ballerina. She she did have a ballet class and then she sort of morphed that into jazz ballet. Uh, but it was just, um, you know, the reason why we lived in every suburb of the Gold Coast is because we kept getting evicted. <laughs> yeah, okay. Jeez. Uh, how do you look back on those times then, Wayne? With some fondness, but also, I guess, a perspective now that you're obviously an adult as to how difficult it must have been for your mum? Look, look, mum's yeah, mum's going to be ninety six this year, and and we just marvel at, at her strength and you know the sacrifices uh, she made for us, and to hold it. Yeah, we don't know how she did it, and uh, you know, and often, often, you know, there wasn't always food on the table, but I mean, it was just one of those situations where it was survival. She, she never let on how 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 much in poverty we really were, but mm. as as I said, we we still managed to you know we, we're very close, and we we still managed to have a a fun sort of early days and what we missed out on, we sort of just made up on our own adventures and getting out there in nature and we didn't need much. Was soccer your first sporting love, Wayne? 
Well, it was actually rugby league. Right. Um, I, I played rugby league, um, you know, over at Tweed side, and then I came over to one side of the border was rugby league. Then I came over to soccer on the other side of the border, and then soccer was very, very close to the beach. So all roads eventually led to the beach. So, so with that in mind, then when did you? How old were you when you first picked up a board? Well, my first cover board was a disaster because I, I used to carry my mate, Terry Gill, who from Gill's Cafe, I used to carry his board to the beach room as his caddy. I'd watch him surf. And every day of the Christmas holidays, he'd come in. I'd say, can I have a go? And go, no. I said, great, let's go back and play pinball. <laughs> and then the very last day of the school holidays, he came in and, he, and I said, can I have a go? And he said, yes. And I went, oh, hang on. Look, I don't want to deal with all this white water stuff. I, I just want to ride the blue way straight up, cut your corners, I said, I'll swim out, you paddle the board out, and I'm, suddenly I'm out the back, I'm in the blue water, in the deep water, sitting on a surfboard. I didn't know the technique of per- turning the surfboard around. A big wave came, a body surfer came along, crashed into the nose of the board, split his head open, oh. and um, came up and he said, you great galoot. Uh, I lost my board. It went into the flag area. There was all kinds of chaos and trouble. That was my very first surf, and I retired. <laughs> Don't blame you. <laughs> so when I when it up about a year later? Yeah. So at that age then, what is it? Thirteen? You're certainly in your early teens by this point. Uh yeah, I was about twelve by then. Yeah. And then I I, I, I learned to surf on this beam, this this swing in the park. That this long wooden. It, you had the the the, the seesaws, and then you had this other long plank that went back and forward. And it it was like surfing, but I I didn't have to deal with the, all the body surfers. So, you know, Snapper Rocks, Kira, wherever it might have been, we're talking, what, mid to late 60s here. So was was mum supportive, Wayne, or was it was it her uh, view, like many yeah. others, that this was a lot of time being spent on something that couldn't possibly take you anywhere? No, you know what, mum, where mum was really supportive is that mum said to me one day, surfing, you are the Nureyev of surfing, that, you know, the Nureyev was a famous uh, Russian ballet, ballet dancer. Mm. And she said she believed that surfing was a dance, and it was the most important thing because I've always felt that that is something I've you know imbibed into into juniors, and that that surfing is a dance. It's a it's a it's a feeling, and it's all about rhythm and connectivity, and and that really served me well. So mum was super supportive, and um, you know my, it was really like my father's generation that really didn't like surfers and you know <laughs> that's just how it was yeah yeah so i've got a question to ask as a, as a as a parent then how did surfing fit in and around school was it daily before and after and wayne just occasionally during oh well the thing is oh, first of all i had to walk around cura point <laughs> to get to the school bus that, that now that was a real challenge on a monday <laughs> morning where, when i'm looking out there and seeing absolutely perfect cylinders coming through cura <laughs> i didn't realize that cura was one of the best waves in the world i thought there was like 50 curas up and down the coast but but what happened was that I, we, when we moved up the coast a little bit i went to miami high school and the, and the principal of miami high school did a very gutsy thing he introduced the very first um, surfboard competition at school. It was the first in Australia, the first in the world for sure, and it was 1970. And he actually, um, it was like this sports excellence program where we, we made this arrangement where he, he, you know, I went into his office one day. I thought I was going to get the cane because we used to get the cane for wagging school. And I had plenty of, of cane along the way. But... The thing is, he said to me, Rabbit, what do you want to be? And I, and I, I, I said, Surf. 
I want to be a world champion. I want to be the, the, the best surfer in the world, and I want to be a professional surfer. And I just was looking for that. that I used to call it the look because it was this look of scorn. <laughs> that, um, and, and, you know, looking down their glasses at me and, you know, and he actually said, Rabbit, I'll back you. And I couldn't believe it was the first adult that, that backed my dream. And, and we made this arrangement where he, he allowed me to go surfing um, as long as I passed my HSC and, and, and did my studies. And it was a great deal. And in a way, it was the forerunner of the whole sports excellence program that we see in all the schools now. So instead of, you know, I went down to the, um, where my son was going to school and I'm grumbling about this surf one day. And I said, you know what? What are you kids are doing now? I used to get the cane for. But, but in all seriousness, Wayne, how amazing is that? Like, that, that sliding doors moment in your life and what would become your surfing career, I mean, how powerful is that singular moment? It's quite amazing. Absolutely powerful because from that day on, I, I, I really felt like, I, you know, it's like the Blues Brothers. I was looking for these, 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 these signs from God, you know. And there was a, we were at school one day and we heard that a, a great Queensland surfer called Paul Nielsen was getting paid twenty dollars a week from Adler Surf to to surf, and I went, "There's a sign from God. He's getting paid to surf. See, this is real. This is going to happen." But it's it's also on a human level. I guess you're looking for validation, aren't you? And and here is validation from a person of authority, almost. Because I I had already gone into the bank, and I walked into the bank manager. I put on you know my best shirt. I, I didn't wear thongs. I, I put shoes on, and and I said to him, sir, I, I need to borrow some money to, to start a, a business. And he said to me, well, you look like an industrious young man. What would be the nature of your business? I said, sir, I need $1,000 to go to Hawaii because I have to go surfing. And, it just, and, and, and there was the look. And he just looked at me and it, it just pointed and said, get out. <laughs> Right, not the same, not the response you were looking for. Uh, World surfing superstar Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew is with us. So this is your journey. All thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, of course, celebrating lives. So Wayne's surfing passion, despite the odd setback or two, is about to turn professional. We'll get into that right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with surfing world champ, administrator and visionary Wayne Bartholomew. So, so Wayne, this is all essentially a hobby at the moment. You're loving your surfing, you're getting out there, you've got some endorsement from from people of uh, positions of power at your school. But when does it elevate to competition? Well, we started um, competition just in the local area with the Queensland titles. Um, and then there was coming down, you know, to, to Bells Beach for the Easter Carnival. And then there was a, a, a an event in Sydney that they had a little bit of prize winning. So there was little bits and pieces along the way that just, uh, you know, obviously you couldn't make a living out of. But you could, uh, you know, win a few trophies and maybe, you know, uh, get a few vouchers for, for, for some clothes and, and maybe a $100 voucher here and there. And that, and that was about it. But then we started hearing about these professional surfing events in Hawaii. And, and, and they were, you know, that was obviously the big, you know, 
the pipeline, the Sunset Beach, Wyoming Bay, these are massive waves that I, I saw movies of but never dreamt that I could ever surf. But that's where, that's really where professional surfing began, there in, in Bells Beach. At the beginning of the 1970s, a time when thousands of young men were being sent each week to fight in the steamy jungles of Vietnam, a short stretch of coast on the island of Oahu, Hawaii, was emerging as the center of the surfing universe. No such thing as pro surfers, because you couldn't make a living from pro surfing. You have this irrational group of kids, and they walked into this town just going, hey, we got some new moves, got some new boards, got some new attitude. Something was getting ready to launch, and then all of a sudden, there it was. So you were described as, you know, a flamboyant, stylish competitor, but were you fierce as well? So it's one thing to surf for fun, another for competition. Did you have that competitive, ruthless streak in you right from the start, Wayne, or did you have to harness that? No, I, I, it was natural because... I was, it was survival mode. I mean, you know, even in those early days, you know, you had to you had to win surf corners enough to get to the next one. And that that's really... I mean, we used to go on one-way air tickets with, with $10 in your pocket. I mean, I went to I went to the Margaret River for the Australian titles. It was a six-week trip via... We, we came to Bells Beach first, drove across the Nullarbor to, to Margaret River, and, and I left home with $15 and a fruitcake. And... And I came home overweight. So that was, I knew how to survive. Right. You did, so if you, didn't, if you didn't get the result, if you didn't perform, you, you were stuck. You were starving. I mean, I, I remember scenes, and this is quite shocking, but, uh, you know, at, at, at Perth Airport where friends of mine that, that were also on the absolute borderline, you know, were, were eating leftover meals that people left when they went to get on the plane. Wow, wow. Oh, yeah, it was full on. Yeah, so it's, it's it's survival in every sense, isn't it? And you and you're chasing right. the dream. So so with, with the lack of money around at this stage, then Wayne, I guess I use the inverted commas to 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 discuss turning professional. I mean, how did that come about, and and, and when did that happen? Well, really, I know this is another sign from God, but this is one day uh, down at Bell's Beach in in nineteen oh gosh seventy three it was, and um, they'd put up a thousand dollars for the for first place in the in the in the, the Bell's Beach East Carnival, and just as it was turning into the Rip Curl Pro, and um, you know it was Michael Peterson from Queensland won the event, but I I um, was went out for this what they call an expression session. <laughs> And uh, as we were walking up the stairs to Bells, I saw this guy up the top, Jack McCoy, a famous cinematographer from surfing. And he was giving people something. And as I got up there, I realized he was handing him notes, like uh, like $10 notes. And, and when I got that $10 in my hand, I know it, it meant it was only just enough to, you know, well, $10 you get if you live on for a week. But I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it actually meant something to me. Like I got handed some money. And I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but... You know, these events that we win in, they were pretty much winner-take-all events. You know, you might, the first prize might be $1,000, but, you know, second prize was $90, third prize was $40, and and, and after that, it was like a, a $20 voucher for a pair of board shorts. Mm, mm. So I want to take you to a particular event. I think it was in 77. It was called the Stubby Surf Classic. It was up at Burley, Burley Heads. Now, I reckon Michael Peterson knocked you out in the semis, Wayne, but how significant was this event? I think it's often referenced or referred to as the first man-on-man-style surfing event ever contested. Is, is that right to your memory? 
Uh, it, it was even bigger than that, you know, because there'd been uh, really the, the volcanic birth of professional surfing in a structured international way. It happened on the north shore of Oahu just a few months before that. Right. And there was a lot of we, we, there was a lot of trouble over there at that time, and which I was, you know, incredibly mixed up and as a central figure. And then when the stubbies, Peter Druin, this visionary Queensland champion surfer, came up with this man-on-man at Burley. Um, with a great prize winning, and it was the beginning of the world tour. This, this 1977 Stubbies Classic began the, the, the proper international world tour where, you know, we had Mark Richards and Sean Thompson and the Hawaiian Michael Ho and, you know, all of the best surfers in the world gathered at Burley Heads. I mean, I did have a classic showdown with Michael Peterson. It was a, it was a match in the semi final where we both scored perfect 10. So you, you really couldn't, you, you know, no, I didn't feel like a loser. Like, I mean, um, I'm not saying it was controversial, but I'm just saying we both had perfect scores and it was a great battle. He went on to win that event. It ended up being the last event he won, but um, he beat Mark Richards in the final. Sean Thompson and I got hit for third. And then from there on, it, it just the, the World Tour took off and man-on-man surfing, the, the system's never been better. But that was a, a beautiful moment because we realised, like, we were trying to will it into existence mm. because by then... You know, like, I'm 22 years of age. I mean, I had people coming up to me. You know, surfing was a bit like swimming, where you're kind of old at 24, yeah. you know, in, in, in the mindset of people. And I'm, I'm 22, there's still nothing, and suddenly there's a world tour, and I went, oh, my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to live the dream. It, it's going to happen in my time. So that that's Burley, Wayne, but am I risking opening up old wounds with you if I ask you what happened in Hawaii a couple of months prior? Oh, it's not not old wounds. It, it was just that it was a it was a bit of a, cl- a clash of of the cultures. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as I said, you know, yeah, sure. I, I had a bit of a swagger. I was very, I, I, you know, to get into the Hawaiian contest, we had to really go and charge big pipeline, big sunset, like, like you know, like a tiller the hun, and um, and and that's what I kind of become known as, this this incredibly out of control sort of guy that. And, and, you know, we'd, we'd kind of offended the, the culture because that was the birthplace of surfing. I, I have to admit, I was completely naive and ignorant to a lot of things, made a few mistakes, but, but basically, you know, it definitely paid my dues, you know, yep. definitely paid my dues for sure. And, and it really was, in many respects, uh, the making of me as a man. So 78, I mean, you paid your dues and, and you're cashing big time this year. So this is your dream year on tour, Wayne. You dominate, you take out your first world title. I mean, we've mentioned some of the words already, flamboyant, fearless, a tactically sharp is another phrase that's used, all words to describe you in your pomp. How did it click in 78? And, and what did you feel were your strengths that made it possible? First of all, I'd had a, I had a classic world title uh, run with um, Sean Thompson, the great South African surfer in 1977. It came down to the wire in Hawaii. He won the world title. I came second. And the thing is, I felt very much that, I, that being number two in the world made me number one contender. And I went into 78 with that, with that mindset of being the number one contender for the, for the crown. So when it comes to, and I mean, look, in the aftermath as well, I guess you're consistently at the pointy end of the rankings in the years that come after this title. And you touched on it off the top in, in the sense that, you know, you feel like you can do it forever when you begin. And, but like any elite sport, you know, mortality ar- arrives, I suppose. So as a professional, how do you know when that time is as a surfer? I mean, our football codes, it's quite obvious. Lack of pace, injuries, reaction time, whatever. How do you know you're losing it as a surfer, Wayne? Or, or don't you? And it's very hard to give it away. Well, you know, 
the, the thing that when we, we were the first to do everything, you know, we were the first to, to, to call ourselves professionals, to go on the world tour. I mean, I, I absolutely loved being a contender. I, I, it was just such, even though, you know, I mean, I got second in the world several times, third in the world. Mm. And, but I just love being there about in the, in, in the conversation of being world champion, being a contender in every event. And it was really, for me, you know, I, I was in that space for about 10 years. And, and, and for me, it was like when I suddenly was coming, you know, like number 15 in the world, you know, uh, other things started to come into my life. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was, I, I came up with this sort of, eventually I, I you know, we, we didn't really know when to retire, Real, i got to say, because there was no one before us. We didn't know, I always used to call it, you know, walking the plank into oblivion because there was just, we, we didn't know where we were going after this. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really confusing time. I mean, you know, when you're the, the sort of the pioneer in that area, the next generation gets to know how to do it, I guess, you know. Yeah. Um, but so, uh, and I, I finally came to this thing. I said, look, when the weekends start getting in the way, it's time to get out. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing I, lo- I love about you is that what makes you so unique, I suppose, in your journey is that while you're obviously competing and competing at the pointy end and winning world titles, you're also shaping the sports direction. I mean, there's the there would be the Wayne Bartholomew Academy of Surfing for a while. You, you'd coach the national team as well. But then there was the ASP, so the Association of Surfing Professionals, which I don't think would become the governing body for pro surfing until maybe 83 officially. But you're on board there from, what, 1977. So you're... You're behind the desk, so to speak, and, and out there competing at the same time. Well, yeah, because you know I was a surfer rep, and it was a, it was a matter of like really knocking the sport into shape and giving it, you know, turning it into, from a complete rabble into into a structure. And it was you know you had to have rules and regulations, and we, and it was you know coming from a, a fairly primitive place, you know, even things like having an international judging panel. I mean, having the budget to do this sort of stuff. Um, you know, these are all little um, massive, massive amounts of rules and regulations that we kind of set the foundation for in those years from 76 to 83. Then came, along came the ASP. And I, I just continued on as, a, as an executive, as, an, as a, uh, a board member mm. and uh, in, in representing in different factions, whether it be a regional representative or a surf representative or going on to actually uh, vying for the top job. I mean, I was, you know, very much at the wheelhouse of um of the foundation and, and moving the sport forward. I just I, I when I was walking to school in nineteen seventy one I had a vision of um of this thing called professional surfing where we went around the world to Grand Prix events, uh, to these amazing locations, the best waves in the world. And I was able to actually implement that as the as in we call it the dream tour when I actually took over the, the ASP. Yeah, I want to get to the Dream Tour after this break and, and all the other changes, some of them at the time um, considered quite radical and now, of course, we watch surfing and they're just the norm. So I want to chat about that next. We're speaking to Wayne Bartholomew on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
Hello, it's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And our guest today is Australian surfing legend, Wayne Bartholomew. So, Wayne, the vision you had that you mentioned on the way to school in the early 70s to change the image of surfing, I mean, how strong did that sit in you as you competed, as you became professional, and even in, in retirement? How fierce was the desire to, I guess, pave the way for others? It was so strong because it was a vision that, that, you know, I mean, it was like, I call it my Forrest Gump days. I used to walk four kilometres to school and four kilometres home, and I had this daydream that just built and built and built and built every day, and it was so strong that, that first of all, I I felt like we nearly willed it into existence so that it happened in our time, and then I realised, really, there was so much work to do. Pretty much everything I did in, in, in those early days was about 15 years before its time, before it became commercially viable. Like, take my, my surf academy, the, the Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew Academy of Surfing, inspired by my principal at Miami High School. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was back in the day where fathers went, are we going to do Rabbit $10 to throw little Johnny or am I going to do it myself, you know? I mean, people just, no one, the only people that came to my surf school had no money. They were like, my, they were like street urchins like I was. And, uh, and I morphed that into the Snapper Rocks junior development program then moved out into the, becoming the national coaching director for surfing australia and then moved on to the asb and by the time i finished all that and came through the other end i came back to the gold coast and said look i want to get my surf school going again by then every beach had a surf school all the licenses were, were, were gone and i was shut out <laughs> jeez so so but going back to the asp i mean you, your moves as i said before were considered somewhat radical revolutionary definitely i mean what, what are some of the changes that you, you're most proud of all these years on way oh uh, well you know I, I, okay I, one example is we used to have best three rides and even though it, you know now it's best two even though it sounds so simple like yeah no brainer mm. what i did i really believed in research and i really believed in doing surveys I, I researched and I, I did a survey on every score and every event for two, over a two-year period and realised that in that a lot of time period, that third ride was actually um, averaging below a five-point ride. I said, that's unacceptable at the elite level. And I realised because they were scurrying around to get that third ride and, and it was taking away from the quality. I said, no, we've got to be entertainers. And so I said, we'll go best two because that... Even with the best three, I, I started realising that the second ride was being affected by the fact that because they were compromising on, on the quality of that third ride, that the second ride was being affected. So anyway, we introduced best two combined with jet ski assist. I had all kinds of everything I did. I mean, basically, I have ridden a wave of scepticism from day one of everything I did. Rabbit can't do that. And, and, and this worked so brilliantly um, because, and the purists went, you can't have jet skis out there. It's all paddling. And I said, no, we're not Iron Man. We're entertainers. Like, let's bring the quality of... I want you guys to, and girls to be able to go out there with a, a free-form thought, not to be shackled by um, all these rules for the sake of rules. And so I, I guess un, I got in there like with a spanner and undid a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned the jet skis because I had them down here. Now, I, I obviously not familiar with it in real time, but I would have thought that was something the purists, as you just touched on there, would have absolutely despised. Was that one of the most difficult barriers to break down? Oh, it really was. I mean, people were just calling it unbelievably, like, you can't do this. You know, you're simply, 
this is you're wrecking the sport. We're going to sack this guy. I mean, the amount of times I heard we're going to sack this guy, gosh, man. Um, anyway, uh, the jet skis ended up being so amazing because first of all, you had the safety factor at, at places like Chihopu, right in in Tahiti, where I mean, I I know certain surfers that their lives were saved by jet skis. Mm. Um, in Hawaii, we used to swim for our surfboards. Like honestly, I mean, you just spend your time swimming. I mean, it's not really a, a, a crowd pleaser. And then, you know, even even long breaks like Bell's Beach. Bell's Beach is like a, can be a seven-minute paddle back to the lineup. I mean, that's not entertaining. Yeah. So, so this was just getting the surfers into the rotation of the sets. I mean, I also found out that it, yeah, places like Hawaii, Sunset Beach, where it's a huge, huge arena. And, and the locals just don't like to sit there. They don't like to be on the beach watching empty sets going through where at their local break, not being ridden where they could be out there surfing. So the jet ski's got the, everyone out there in that cycle of the sets. And, uh, and, it, and, and just, it just proved, you know, um, it was a bit of a masterstroke, really. Yeah, yeah. It looks at, As was the Dream Tour, which we spoke about before. Now, this was, you know, the reinvention, I guess, of the pro surfing tour. And again, sounds obvious now, but it was about taking events outside of the populated centres, if you like, and prioritising premier surfing locations, yeah? When I, you know, what happened in 1998, Kelly Slater, the world's greatest surfing at the time, a, a six-time world champion, walked away from the sport. He retired in 98. I came on board in 99 to a very, uh, a, a very restless group of surfers. The, the, the image of ASP was in the gutters. People thought it wouldn't even last a year. I came in with all these new rules and regulations. I also really it was very difficult, but I said, hey, this whole thing of going to summer metropolitan beaches with, you know, bums on bleachers kind of attitude. I said, it, it might work for the crowd, but if the surf sucks in summer. It's not the endless summer. The surf's great in autumn and sometimes early winter all around the world. And so I had to get these events that had been going for 20 years and say, hey, I'm, like, I remember going to France and going, hey, I know August is incredible. All the crowds come down from Paris. They, they, you know, they get on the beaches at Hossegor. They take all their clothes off and frolic around. I said, but the surf's way better in the end of September. And I know this from coming here for decades. And I said, we're going to move your event out there. And what used to happen was that everyone would go back to Paris and there'd be like tumbleweed going down the streets. That extended the whole period for six weeks. Their whole... Their whole um, um, their summer, like the, the rentals and everything got extended and we ended up having perfect surf. But uh, look, look, this is another case where they all rallied together and said, we're going to get rid of this guy, man. Like, <laughs> this, this, you know, we're we're going to sack this rabbit guy because it, it, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. It ended up being like we had, I had to really like dig in deep and just, that's why we, uh, we introduced the event licenses. The event licenses gave security to the athletes, gave security to the events. There was a lot of ambush marketing going on and serving back then, and it gave security to the administration, and it, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. And now, in 2023, um, Wayne, I suppose the commercial power of the sport? I mean, we've now got men and women who are household names in a digital age. There's f- real financial investment in the sport, which has grown enormously. I mean, the sport would appear to be, you educate me here, in excellent health, you know, amid so much competition for attention and for money and eyeballs and sponsorship. And, and, and you're exactly right there because you're competing against a hundred other sports. That's a fact. And the thing is, Look, I knew, look, my administration, we took it as far as we could on the, on the 
from the, the budget we had, all I had was a handful of super dedicated people who are very, very good at their jobs. Um, and I knew eventually the administration and the central body would have to move back to California. That's where the dollars were, and that's where the big sponsorship was. And, and it was the right move for the sport. I'll put you on the spot here, but what do you think's next? Well, I think, um, you know, first of all, you know, as I said, we're competing against a lot of other sports. I, I think that the WCL has uh, wisely uh, put a lot of resources into the broadcast. You know, you know, look, it's, it's the whole broadcast. It's the mm. whole social media set. It's it's what the, the, the generationally, it's the eyeballs and, you know, really growing that international community and also reaching out beyond the, you know, beyond the surf industry, you know, beyond the other surfing and and really you know surfing will never really be mainstream but we we i always had this attitude let's not pretend to be something we're not we're never going to be tennis we're never going to be afl we're never going to be golf we're surfing you know we've got to we've got to go with the ocean and and we go to the best places in the in the and you know on the on the tour in its best surface best waves oh what a life i can't even imagine so before i let you go wayne for those listening at the moment who just might be fond of a wave or for those who had have big dreams like you did back in the day oh, put your talent identification hat back on what makes a good surfer can you spot a natural talent however raw i believe every world champion can see an x factor in in in, in other surfers and you know, you see kids coming through that have got that X factor. It really is that blend, though. You know, that that, that, that competitive drive. Mm. You know, having the you know being able to sort of um, multitask and and think on your feet. You know, so you know, like Gabriel Medina is is, is the best surfer in in his um, realm because you know he's got so much game, so much gamesmanship, to, as well as his incredible natural ability. You know, that that, that that Brazilian storm that came on. You know, I always used to feel that. You know, I was, I was asked in, in 2000, they said, when are we going to have a Brazilian world champion? And I said, hey, one day a boy will, will you know, wander down the, from the favelas, you know, the slums behind the city in Rio or somewhere, Sao Paulo. And he, I said, he'll find a half-broken surfboard on the beach. He'll have the natural talent of Pelé and he'll become a world champion. It's exactly the story of Adriano de Souza, the, 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 the first Brazilian world champion. So, you know, the Brazilian storm have kind of taken over, but then you've got John John... Florence, and then you've got you know Jack Robinson, Ethan Ewing from Australia, and and all these incredible surfers from all around the world, and you know it's just that that they will push each other. And women surfing has absolutely gone through the roof. I, I love watching women surfing together; it's incredible. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us today. I mean, as impressive as your own career and your world title obviously was, it's clear that you've put in so much more than you have taken out. Your passion is undeniable. The sport is so lucky to have you as someone who cares so much about its future. So congratulations on everything you've done in and out of the water. And thanks again for sharing it with us today. Oh, thank you. You know, surfing's been a, bless- a blessing on my life. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.